Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. Thoughts on the Roman Epistle, Chapters 1-8. By James Boyd. Romans Chapter 3. From the entrance of sin into the world God had made promises of a deliverer for man, one who would put an end to the oppression of the devil, swallow up death in victory. Put away sin out of the world, reign in righteousness, bring in an era of peace and blessing, and encompass the wide world with the salvation of God. This was long delayed, for it was in the ways of God to put the flesh under probation, and by various tests bring out into result the whole weakness and wickedness that was in it. This test was completed by the sending of Christ into the world, and by the presentation of him to the responsibility of man. This last test we do not get in this epistle it deals with man and his responsibility as a child of Adam, whether without law, or under it, and as having to do with God, who had shown goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, with the object in view of leading him to repentance. And this along with everything else, he had sinned against. And now that wrath was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, where could he find a refuge? There was coming a day of wrath, in which the righteous judgment of God would be revealed, and in that day those who had sinned without law, would perish without law, and those who had sinned in the law, would be judged by the law. The Gentile had not received the law, but was left to the light that creation gave him, and to his conscience, which convicted him as a sinner. And in addition to these things there was witness borne to God by the fact that he did good, and gave rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling the hearts of men with food and gladness. His desire being that they might, feel after him and find him, for he was not far from any one of them, Acts chapter 14 verse 17, 17 27. The Jew had the law, and boasted in it, and was confident that he was a guide of the blind, a light of them that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. But however the Jew might pride himself in the law, he would find in that day that it would not justify him, but that it would judge and condemn him. The greater the privilege, the greater the judgment, if man is unfaithful. There are certain immutable principles upon which God judges, and from which he never departs, I might say, from which he cannot depart, and they are set down here. When he judges, he will render to every man according to his works. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, incorruptibility, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. These principles are immutable when God puts on the character of a judge and approaches man in that character, then he will neither justify the wicked, nor condemn the righteous. Even in the resurrection it is those that have done good that are in the resurrection of life, and those that have done evil that are in the resurrection of judgment. This epistle unfolds to us how it is brought about, that there are those found who by patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory, honor and incorruptibility. It is clear that evil-doing and not well-doing is what distinguishes man by nature. The privileges that men possessed only augmented the guilt, for man was the bond-slave of sin. Under law, like the Jew, or without law, like the Gentile, all were under sin, and the proof of this lay in the fact that man served sin with every member of his body. In chapter 3 the members are taken up in detail, and shown to be in the service of sin. The throat, an open sepulchre. The tongue, using deceit. The lips, asks poison under them. The mouth, full of cursing and bitterness. The feet, swift to shed blood. The ways, destruction and misery in them. The eyes, no fear of God before them. Then, none righteous, none understanding, none seeking after God, none doing good. Then, all gone out of the way, together become unprofitable. This is what the law says to them that are under it. 
He may boast himself in it, but it condemns him unmercifully, and what reply can he make? For he cannot but acknowledge that it is holy, just and good. Thus every mouth is stopped, and the whole world brought in guilty before God. It took the greater part of the history of the world to bring all this into evidence, but God was long-suffering and could afford to wait. One day is with him as one thousand years, and one thousand years as one day. The first Adam, his fall, his race and probation, though no part of his eternal counsel, have their part in the fulfillment of this counsel. And it was necessary that the complete ruin of the creature should be brought to light, in order that the recovery of that creature should redound to the glory of God to all eternity. It is now no great wonder to us that we have heard throughout the darkness of the dispensations that are past the oft-repeated cry arise from hearts exercised by the Spirit of God. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Nor shall we ever know the true answer to that question until we are able to look up to the right hand of God by the clear eye of faith. And say, we see Jesus. Then the question will never be asked again. Then we will have found the key that unlocks the door to every mystery of the universe, and the answer to every moral question that could arise in the breast of any child of Adam's race. There we will find the book of wisdom unsealed, wherein we may read the deep things of God, and satiate our souls with all the infinite treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And not only that, but there the heart may rest in the consciousness, that though evil may seem for the present moment to have the upper hand, and good be despised and persecuted. The day for its expulsion from the universe draws on apace, for Christ will cleanse the world from the presence of sin, and give rest to the weary, groaning creation. The gospel turns us away from man, as one in whom it would be madness to trust, and fixes our thoughts on God revealed in Christ. The gospel is the gospel of God. It is the intervention of God on behalf of his poor, ruined creature that it speaks of. It is no longer what man is to be for God that is brought before us. It is not his holy and just demand upon the children of men, spoken out of the thick darkness, and from the midst of the devouring fire that salutes our ears. But it is what the blessed God is for ruined sinners who have no claim upon him. It is no longer man and his activities, but it is the wonderful works of God that is preached as glad tidings. God has drawn near to us to make himself known to us, and by this means deliver us from our sins, from the dominion of sin, the fear of death, the oppression of the devil, the lust of the flesh and the influence of the world. We are to stand still and see the salvation of God. Under law it was man struggling to gain a righteousness that was always beyond his reach. Instead of finding life in the law, he found death, and instead of righteousness, condemnation, and instead of blessing, a curse. Now that order of things has come to an end, and God is seen drawing near to man in another character altogether. The time to fulfill the promises made to the fathers had arrived, and God is found to be faithful to every word that he had ever at any time uttered. The dignity of the person in whom God would intervene on behalf of man had been clearly set forth in the scriptures. It had not been understood by the rulers of the people. When the question was put to them by the blessed Lord, what think ye of Christ? whose son is he, the scribes answer, the son of David. They had no greater conception of their Messiah than this. And truly he was the son of David, the one who would take up everything that was shadowed forth in David, and who would fulfill the will of God. But he had a greater glory than that of son of David, he was also son of God. A mere son of David could have been no better than his father. David could paint a beautiful picture of what a king ought to be, but has to confess that he was not that man. His last words were a confession of his failure. But if he was able to describe what kind of man, he that rules over men, ought to be, it was by the Spirit of Jehovah, who gave his heart the impression of Christ. He was a beautiful figure of Christ, but like every other figure when examined closely there is more contrast than comparison. This personage was not only David's son, but he was David's Lord. 
he was Son of God, and declared so by power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. The Spirit of Holiness that characterized him in passing through this defiled world was the power by which he rose from the dead, having broken the power of death. Perfect surrender to the will of God, giving himself up to do the will of him that sent him, whatever the cost might be to himself and absolute separation from the unhallowed scene through which he had to pass in his pathway of testimony for God, characterized him, and, along with the destruction of the power of death, declared him to be the Son of God. This is the one who is the subject of the glad tidings of God. It is in him that the power of God is vested for the recovery of man. The ear of every man is to be open to him, the eye of every man is to be fixed upon him, and the heart of every man is to get an impression of him. He was the effulgence of God, so that he could say, He that has seen me has seen the Father, he spoke the words of God so that God was speaking through his lips to the hearts of men. In him God had come close to men in the grace and love of his own heart. The salvation of God was in him. Man in the pride and obstinacy of his heart rejected him, and cast him out of the world, condemning him to the death of a malefactor, and nailing him to the cross. Thus declaring his ignorance and his hatred of God. But all this, however wicked on the part of man, hindered not the carrying out of the counsels of God. God must ever be more than a match for Satan, he can never be defeated by the creature, indeed, what is said of him is that, he takes the wise in their own craftiness, and it is always where the enemy thinks he is most successful that his defeat is the heaviest. How true it was of the devil, when he led man to pit forth his hand and by robbery to aspire to equality with God, thus ruining the handiwork of God and exulting in the victory. That the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment, Job chapter 20 verse 5, for then it was declared that the seed of the weak woman whom he deceived would bruise his head. And again when he laid hold of the enmity of the human heart to induce man to crucify his saviour, how true it was, that, he made a pit, and digged it, and is fallen into the ditch that he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate, Psalm chapter 7 verses 15 to 16. He knew not the greatness of the Christ. He was confident that the stronghold of death would hold him prisoner, as it had held every other son of Adam who had gone down into it, but the resurrection spread consternation in the ranks of Satan. He could not be holden of death, by entering into it he became its destruction. It lay upon man as the judgment of God on account of sin, but by entering into it the Son of God annulled it, and now every blessing for man is in him in resurrection. Through him forgiveness of sins is declared to all men, and in him all that believe are justified from all things. He is the one who will give effect to every thought of the heart of God, and in whom men are to find the blessing of eternal life. God has made him Lord and Christ. Every blessing that God has for man is in him and to be found nowhere else, and all the authority and power of God are vested in him for the subjugation of everything to himself. God has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. Hence the gospel is for the obedience of faith. Christ is to be submitted to. And then it is worldwide. It has all men in view. The writer of this epistle was the apostle specially called out and appointed to go to the Gentiles. Peter was sent to the circumcision, Paul to the uncircumcision. The whole world has come into view for blessing before God. Nicodemus, like every proud Jew, thought that God would have respect to no people but those of his own nation. But he has to hear from the lips of the one whom he recognized as teacher sent from God, that it so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John chapter 3 verse 16. 
Peter had his difficulties about going to the house of Cornelius, but he learned through the vision of the sheep led down from heaven that God was favorable to all men in the gospel. Paul would much have preferred to be sent to his own nation, and on account of the peculiar mission given to him, and what it meant to the Jew. In a moment of dreadful anxiety for the ancient people of God, he wished himself accursed from Christ, chapter 9 verse 3. But if God is going to deal in grace with men who are all alike guilty, he will be no respecter of persons. If he is to judge men, he will judge righteously, according to men's works, and if he is to show grace, he will show it alike to all. In raising up Jesus, God fulfilled the promises he had made to Israel, and when they rejected him, he gave them the sure mercies of David in him risen from the dead, but because he is acting thus in grace, and because he is also the God of the Gentile as well as of the Jew, he has set Christ as a light of the Gentiles, that he should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The sun is placed in the heavens, that men might be illuminated by its brightness, and warmed by its heat, and Christ is to be the Son of the grace and love of God to all men. But he is Lord of all, and all must submit to him. To refuse to submit to him, is to refuse the intervention of God on behalf of men, and is to declare oneself a rebel, and therefore exposed to the wrath of God. In the day of his glory, when he shall take to himself his great power and shall reign, all who refuse to submit to him shall perish on the spot, now if men hear the gospel, and reject it. They place themselves outside the circle of blessing, for the blessing of God is confined to Christ, and is only made good to those who submit to him. Of this gospel Paul was not ashamed. He had no need to be, it was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believed. No reason now existed for any poor sinner continuing under the authority of darkness. This salvation had first been preached in Jerusalem, and it was to the Jew first, but it was also to the Gentile, and was being published to every creature under heaven. It was for the poor, but the rich was not passed over. The light of the kindness and love of God in Christ shone for men of every nationality, and of every class and color. Light had sprung up for the whole human race, for God would have all men to be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth. What a change from the past darkness, the darkness of Judaism or the deeper darkness of the Gentile idolatry. It was not now the demand of God upon man, spoken from the midst of the thick darkness, neither was it the testimony of creation, of God, doing good, and giving rain from heaven, and fruitful season. Filling the hearts of men with food and gladness, it was tidings of salvation, the salvation of God. It is said to be the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. It is the means by which God sets free the bond slaves of sin and Satan. The first need of man is righteousness. There are not many men bold enough to say that they are all that they ought to be. Most men are willing to admit that they are not altogether perfect, but that is to admit that they are not as God made them. For if I am just as God made me I certainly am all that I ought to be. If man is as God made him, and I am not satisfied with him in the state and condition in which I find him, it is quite clear that I am vain enough to think that I could improve upon the work of God. But the very fact that no man is satisfied with the general state in which men are found in the world is a proof to himself that he is in a fallen condition, that is, that he is not as God made him, and if he is not as God made him, what has taken place to bring him into this deplorable condition? And I might add, if he is in a state other than that in which he was created, has God got nothing to say about his ruin? None of us are satisfied with men as we find them, but we do not stop there, we admit the principle of responsibility, for we hold one another accountable for our actions. But I cannot very rightly hold my neighbor accountable for his actions towards me, and refuse to admit any responsibility on my part with respect to him. Now if we admit the principle of responsibility to one another, how can we refuse to admit it with regard to our relationships with God? 
I see man is not as he is morally, the work of a righteous creator, but at the same time I refuse to him the right to carry out the dictates of his evil heart. For by doing so he would trespass upon me, and I do not allow him to trespass upon me with impunity, that is, I admit he is ruined, and that he is evil disposed. But I do not allow that to be any excuse for any act of his that would be to my hurt. But can man be amenable to my judgment, and immune from the judgment of God? If I have a right, where my interests are involved, to say to my neighbor, you must do this, and, you must not do that, and, if you do such things. Certain consequences must ensue, has God no right to say anything? Is he the only one in the universe who is without the power to safeguard his rights? What wickedness the heart of man is privy to? Well may the blessed and righteous God say to the rebel sinner in the day of judgment, out of thine own mouth will I judge thee. God is the only one to whom rights are denied in this world. But the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, draws nigh, and in that day men will learn that he does not allow his creature to trample upon his rights with impunity. In that day the hidden things of darkness will be brought to light, and the counsels of the heart will be made manifest, and all men will learn that God is not mocked. Men are sinners, and in need of righteousness wherewith to appear before God. The first thing Adam and his wife discovered, when they had sinned against God, was that they were naked. Their sin had exposed them to the judgment of God. What they now needed was a covering. They needed it in the presence of one another, but they found out, later on in the presence of God, that they needed it much more to shelter them from his eye than from the gaze of one another. Men do not like to appear in the presence of one another as they really are. We do not care to be too well known to one another. We resent the encroaches of an inquisitive person. We hide the secrets of our hearts from the gaze of our fellows. This in itself betokens something wrong. Why should I dread the day of manifestation? Why should I shrink from being exposed in the sight of the universe? Is it not because I know that I am unfit to be seen as I really am? If all that could be known of me would be to my praise how gladly would I court the closest inspection? How anxious would I be for everyone to know everything about me? The inquisitiveness of my neighbor would be no annoyance to me, I would not resent the narrowest scrutiny. But no one of us is willing to appear as we really are, we all readily don the apron of fig leaves, otherwise society would be intolerable. But something else is necessary for the eye of God than fig leaves. There was no word about fig leaves when Adam and Eve heard the voice of God. If they needed their nakedness hidden from one another, they needed much more to have it hidden from God. But the covering which they had made for themselves could not do this, Sir Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. And I hid myself. No covering of man's provision can shelter the sinner from the judgment of God. The only question is, can God himself provide a covering, and if he can will he so interest himself in the welfare of his rebellious creature, that he will make provision for his need? Blessed be God, this question is answered before man is driven out from paradise to toil for his bread. The Lord God made goats of skins, and clothed them. Here we get indicated to us that the judgment pronounced upon man must be inflicted, but that the one upon whom the judgment would be executed would be of God's provision, and would be the covering for the sinner. Death was the penalty lying upon man for his disobedience, and to obtain a covering of skins, a victim has to suffer the penalty. The covering of their nakedness indicates to us the way in which God would justify the believing sinner in Christ, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. God has not passed over our sins, as if they were of no importance, the judgment that lay upon us has been executed, and we must learn this if we are to get the knowledge of God. We must learn that, though he may have mercy upon us, he can have none upon our sins.
The Gospel sets before us what God has done, how he has vindicated himself, how sin has received its judgment, and how the sentence that was pronounced by God upon the sinner has been maintained, and his salvation made possible. In the Gospel Christ Jesus is set forth a mercy seat through faith in his blood, for the showing forth of his righteousness, in respect of the passing by the sins that had taken place before. Through the forbearance of God, for the showing forth of his righteousness in the present time, so that he should be just and justify him that is of the faith of Jesus. Here my soul is instructed in righteousness, the righteousness of God. Whatever man may think of sin, I learn here that God will not tolerate it. I might have thought in the past dispensation that there was a possibility of God ignoring his judgment which he had pronounced against sin, when I see him pass over the sins of his people before the cross. Now I learn that every atom of his righteousness has been vindicated. The blood on the mercy seat is the witness to this. He has not recalled his judgment, he has executed it. The place from which he addresses me, and where I meet him, is where I learn his righteousness, that is, his perfect consistency with himself. He has been his own standard of moral rectitude, and it could not be otherwise, for all his actions must proceed from what he is in his own nature and attributes. And it is him that I have to acquaint my heart with, hence it is important that I should know that his works are the outcome of what he is. He has not set up a standard lower, nor other than himself, to model his conduct by. If he justifies the ungodly, he is just in doing so, and I might be willing to take his word for it that it is so, but he has taken in hand our instruction that we might understand and know how it is so. The man that is described in the latter half of the first chapter, the whole of the second, and the first half of the third, has been brought to an end in the execution of the judgment under which he lay, and the blood on the mercy seat is the witness to it. We get a type of this in the blood-sprinkled lintel, on the night when the destroying angel passed through the land of Egypt. The angel was commissioned to destroy all the firstborn in the land, but God made provision for his people. A lamb was taken and killed, and its blood sprinkled upon the lintel and doorpost of the houses of the children of Israel. In the eye of the destroying angel there was no firstborn in the house where the blood was sprinkled. The judgment that he was executing had preceded him, and the witness to it was the blood that met his eye at the entrance to the house. Thus God set forth the way in which he would shelter his people by the blood of Jesus. He executed judgment that night upon all the firstborn in Egypt, either in their own persons or in the person of their substitute. God would have his people saved and he provided a means of salvation. But when we come to the gospel of the grace of God it is for all men, he will have all men to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore the mediator gave himself a ransom for all. God has provided a shelter for every child of Adam. Therefore the apostle was not ashamed of the gospel. He did not require to steal away out of sight from the presence of need, he carried that which could meet the need of man perfectly, and there were no limitations upon it. He brought righteousness to men as the gift of God, and every man might avail himself of it. Moreover it was upon the principle of faith, so that it was available for the vilest. It was held forth in the Gospel, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is to say, it is testified of in the report which is to be believed. And the man who believes has it. Or as we get in the third chapter, it is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. And Paul was the herald of this Gospel. He got his commission from the Lord, indeed, he was converted with that end in view, as was told him at his conversion, I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. To make thee a minister and a witness both of these things that thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I shall appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people. And from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, Acts chapter 26 verses 16 to 18. Therefore he says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. 
so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. It was a great joy to the apostle that he was entrusted with the glad tidings. And what an honor it was to be entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the only means of salvation for Jew and Gentile, but no other means was required. For it was by the gospel God was saving the souls of men. And how needful it was that all should hear these glad tidings. It might meet with great opposition in the world. The apostle who writes this epistle had himself been a persecutor of it, but the grace of God in Christ had overcome his insane opposition, and had made him the most willing servant of Christ upon earth. And therefore he had no reason to doubt its power to subdue the proudest heart. He knew that it was God's way of saving the souls of sinners, and he knew there was no other means, and he also knew how much men needed the salvation that it was his privilege to proclaim worldwide. And Jew and Gentile needed it alike, for all had sinned, and come short of the glory of God. That all had sinned, both Jew and Gentile would have been willing to confess, but what was this apparently new standard that seemed to be introduced here? What it was to be short of the requirement of the law, the Jew knew well enough, but everything must now be measured by the glory of God. God is not now hidden in the thick darkness, he has come into the light in Christ, he stands before us in Christ perfectly revealed, hence what might have availed for man in the past dispensation will not do now. Man must be fit to stand in the presence of the glory of God. The old order of things has passed away, the probation of man is closed forever, and God has come to light in the gospel. And man must be able to stand in the presence of this perfect revelation of God or perish. But it is to make man fit to stand in the light of God, that God has intervened on his behalf. If under law man was a transgressor, and without law lawless, and amenable to a judgment that would have been eternal condemnation to him, God had the right to bring in a new standard by which to measure his creature. And up to which to propose to bring him by his own almighty power, for it is in view of that glory that God justifies him. If the intervention of God became a necessity, if anyone was to be saved, and if God came fully to light in that intervention, then a new standard has been created for man to be measured by. And there is no other standing for man but in the presence of God thus revealed, and if he cannot stand there, he has no standing whatever. Therefore though the Jew was more privileged than the Gentile, there was no real difference for these two reasons. First, that both were alike sinners, and second, that both were short of the required stature, the glory of God. All men are viewed as under sin, and servants to it, and short of the glory of God. The trial is over, his worthlessness and guilt are fully proven, it must be mercy now on the part of God, or hopeless condemnation for man. But redemption is in Christ Jesus, redemption that involves for man a new status entirely different from anything that could have been his portion in Adam, even had innocence been maintained. We can only learn what is involved in that redemption as we learn the new place that man has entered into in Christ in the presence of God fully revealed. It includes, in its most perfect character, a changed body, and glory with Christ, but at the present moment it goes no farther than justification. But if we are able to lay hold of the true character of this redemption that is said to be in Christ Jesus, we will better understand how it is that we can be held to be righteous by God. We who are nothing but sinners in ourselves. We have got a new standing in Christ in the presence of God, in Christ whose blood has been shed for the remission of our sins. We are said to be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The blood upon the mercy seat shows us how God has vindicated his righteousness, so that when he justifies a poor sinner, we see how perfectly righteous he is in doing so. But it is the believer that he justifies, that is to say, it is the man who, in the confession of his guilt and helplessness, throws himself upon the mercy of God, and believes the gospel. He may be in man's account good or bad, in God's account he is a sinner in the confession of his sin, and one as regards whom he will exercise his prerogative of mercy.
Faith is the principle upon which men are now to come into blessing with God, it is his revealed way of putting men in relationship with himself, and whatever a man may be, Jew or Gentile, far off or nigh. If he believes in Jesus, God is his justifier. And this excludes boasting. All men are placed upon one common ground, there is no difference, the flesh has no claim upon the mercy of God, he treats all alike, righteousness as the free gift of God is held out to all alike. And the man that believes in Jesus has it upon him. If man is in blessing with God, he is there by the grace of God, not by his own works, and therefore he has nothing to boast himself of.